0: Hey Retention Pros, I'm Noah Rahim today and I lead partnerships here at Malomo. I'm super pumped to continue to chat with ecosystem experts alongside Mariah, who you all already know and love. Say hi, Mariah.
1: Hey everyone. As you probably know, Retention Chronicles likes to bring in some of the best retention focused brands in the Shopify ecosystem.
0: But we don't just feature brands, we also feature some great thought leaders in the Shopify ecosystem that serve those brands.
1: And because we always want these conversations to be fun, you'll hear us talk to our guests about what they're excited about and what's helped them get to where they are today. We
0: hope you'll stick around to learn and laugh with us.
1: Retention Chronicles is sponsored by Malomo, a shipment and order tracking platform improving the post-purchase experience. Be sure to subscribe and check out all of our episodes at gomalomo.com.
0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Retention Chronicles. Super excited for today's ecosystem episode with Michael DeSantis from Doris Dev. Uh, Michael will will give a more formal introduction here in a second, but I'm really excited for the conversation. We haven't had a product focused agency on yet, so should be a really unique perspective and. Michael was also uh, running point at one of the the new brands that we brought on called Canopy. So he brings the the brand experience along with the agency experience, which we love. Um, yeah. And with that, Michael, I'd love to pass it off to you for a quick intro. Well,
2: oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, Mike DeSantis, I am the director of business operations here at DoorsDev on the founding team at Canopy. Um yeah, I can go into a little bit more detail about Doris and Canopy. Uh Doris is a full stack product development agency for hire. We um you know, c- you can kind of think of us essentially as like an outsourced VP of product for brands. Um I think in general uh you know, the kind of the inception of Doris Dev was building product is a is a black box for most people um when they step into to launching their own D2C brand and um, our two co-founders came from a company called Quirky, where they set up tons of supply chains um, in conjunction with a team in Hong Kong. Uh, once Quirky folded, they kind of both went their separate ways, uh, stood up supply chains for a company called Raiden and a company called Gobi, and realized that this was a templatizable process that we could really build out and you know help support other brands in bringing new product to life when we first launched we were primarily focused on setting up supply chains in in the interim we've uh, in the in the time since we've launched we've also expanded into supporting on the industrial design side of things so you know taking, product concept from somebody's head and building something beautiful that can then we can then hand off to our supply team supply chain team to go get manufactured um and we also support on the freight and ops side of things as well so for some of our most of our clients we uh help support on import and on the fulfillment side of things we can help set you up in a 3pl and manage that inbound uh experience as well as shipping out to, to end customer so really everything from Inception of product, all the way through fulfillment and customer, and including industrial design, design engineering, mechanical, electrical engineering, supply chains, uh, etc. So, all sorts of fun stuff on that side of things, and kind of with those chops. I mean, you know, a handful of agencies have have pulled the trigger on this now, um, taking whatever their core expertise is and applying that to launching their own product brand. So um we started work on canopy in 2019 um lucas who's the head of product of doris dev and uh the co-ceo of canopy came up with this idea after watching his girlfriend like scrub her humidifier every single weekend like taking an hour (laughs) white vinegar q-tips uh the whole nine and uh he the reason she was using it also was for like skin care, not for not because she was sick or anything like that. And uh, kind of co- took those two insights and was like, we can redesign a humidifier to make it super make it look a lot nicer. Right. A lot of humidifiers on the market are very much just an appliance, um, make it a lot easier to clean and position it in the beauty wellness space. Um, and that was really like the the key insight and unlock on the canopy side of things. We launched that, that brand in October, October 1st of, uh, 2020. So we're coming up on two years in a couple of days. So that's really exciting. Um, so that team has grown. I think we have about eight full-time people on the canopy team right now. We have about 30 to 35 people on the doorstep side of things, um, offices in New York and Hong Kong. Um And, yeah, I mean, one other thing, I, I don't know if we, we we covered off on when we initially spoke, no, but we also incubated another brand called Factored Quality, um, which launched this year as well, which is a managed services SaaS platform for booking quality control inspectors anywhere in the world. Um, So think about it like Flexport. You can go in, give us all your uh, factory details, information. We can run factory audits, inline inspections, pre-shipment inspections, compliance testing, et cetera. Um, So really just like helping to support brands that are, you know, graduating from Doris Dev and or just other D2C Mm. ecosystem who are looking for support on getting kind of boots on the ground in in China or wherever they're, they're manufacturing goods because you can't really back in the day, back in the heyday, you could just fly over to China during production and watch stuff. Come out <laughs> and I mm-hmm. need somebody there to do it for you. Right. Wow. There's a ton to unpack. So much. <laughs> yeah. I'm
1: like so impressed. Like my head is spinning here. You talk about everything that you do that um, Dorsev does. It's, it's, I can't wait to dive in. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. no, It's, it's exciting stuff. I, uh, unique seat for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. It, and it's, I, I'm a little nervous myself now because, like, I don't know much about product development at all, which is one of the reasons I was super excited to have you on. Uh, and I, I do think it's a gap, right? For like a, a lot of our customers, to your point, like, we're seeing a lot of our top uh, marketing agencies spin out their own brands, um, and their expertise is really solid on like, the marketing side. But I would imagine a lot of them are going to need some help on you know, the product side and, and iterating on the businesses that they're either acquiring or, or starting from scratch. So I think it's a really interesting dynamic. Um my first question that came to mind was now that Canopy's a few years in, you kind of talked about the headcount at each Canopy and Doris, um have you and the founders of Doris gone back to Doris now full time or what's the intersection between
2: Yeah. So I I think like in the the lead up to launching Canopy, I was probably 75% on Canopy and that probably lasted, um, you know, almost a full year um, post launch of the business. Um, In in the time since that, my time has probably shrunk down to closer to 25%. Um, Justin and Lucas split time probably a little bit more evenly, but at the end of the day, these things oscillate and vary. And, you know, prepping for Q4 right now on the canopy side of things is is a little bit more intensive but um we're we're still all three of us are kind of split, uh, across both teams uh, at this moment in time. And, um, you know, I, at this point, especially like on the canopy side of things and on the Doris dev side of things, we've hired in people to really start executing on, on really specific things so we can be involved in strategy and, and growing these businesses from a tactical perspective and less like needing to be in the weeds on the executional side of things. But that doesn't mean we don't still get our hands dirty when we need to. Right,
0: right, right, right. Um, cool that's good to know um okay so i kind of want to if it's okay with you i would love to like give you a a product idea and just like have <laughs> you walk the audience through uh like okay. how you would think about you know from start to finish bringing this product to to life yeah um and i'm just going to use one of my one of my very good friends shout out to josh <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> josh is just started selling a this is going to sound weird, but it's, a, I think it's a cool idea. It's like a wall mounted cat scratcher. Okay. So it's like Fun. a thing that a crash can, a cat can come, like it's on the wall. It looks cool. They can come play with it. They can, you know, rub them, you know, <laughs> scratch their backs, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and so he went through like this whole, uh, he went through like uh, a warehouse at you know, overseas, I think maybe even, um, uh, Alibaba or something but I'm just if we took that example and said like we want to create this ourselves from scratch how -hmm. would you how would you what would you even start with like from a consulting standpoint do you do anything up front to make sure that you know it's viable (laughs) that you even want to take the time to do it and then all the way to like fulfillment I guess Um, and then we'll obviously talk about you know what happens once it's actually in market as well a little later
2: Of course, yeah. I mean, I I guess I'll start with like a little inside baseball, which is, I think, worth noting. So, you know, Doris Dev's a a bootstrap business. Um, When we first launched Doris Dev, the goal here was to find partners that had won the capital into the skills and expertise to bring product to market. Um, Mm Anybody who works in any sort of design field will tell you there's so much work that gets done and executed on and never sees the actual light of day. And kind of given the work that we do in physical product, we needed to partner with businesses and brands that were gonna be able to bring product from concept all the way through to execution and ideally find success. Um, The way that we've grown Doris Dev as a business is through word of mouth, almost exclusively. Like we don't do outbound marketing. We don't have a press team. Um, We just put good work out there and good work, you know, good things come back to us. And I I think that, you know, we we can talk about retention and, you know, I think that's that's part of the retention piece on the Doris Dev side of things um, there, there are a bunch of ways to get product. There are a handful of ways to get product made, maybe not a bunch. Um, and I think it all depends on like level of complexity and what you're trying to do with your business at the end of the day. Right. If you're looking to launch, uh, you you know, you, you get a jungle scout account or something, and you want to launch a a niche brand on Amazon and you're just trying to have a side hustle, like Doris dev is not going to be a great fit. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's a great, that you know if, if that's the the goal, I think there's a ton of opportunity for you to like do that hustle work, go um, go on Alibaba, find potential suppliers and you know figure out ways to find an off-the-shelf product that you can make some minor customizations to in, in working with a factory overseas and you know get that imported. Um if your thinking that you're going to be moving a decent amount of volume and you want a partner to help you lead you through the process, there are trading companies that you can work with as well. Um, those will generally be businesses that are US-based that have you know a deep manufacturing base overseas. They'll be the manufacturer of record. They'll go find the supplier for you. They'll set up the supply chain. Um, they will then mark up the cost of goods sold. That's how they make money. Um Got it. So- you don't own that supply chain. They essentially own it. You have to keep ordering through them in perpetuity um, unless you go and stand up your own supply chain and set up a, a relationship directly with the manufacturing partner. Um, so that's what do, you,
0: what do you most of your customers do? Or maybe you're maybe you're getting to that. Yeah. So
2: so that's uh, that's the next piece of the puzzle. Right. I, I think like the, the goal of Doris Dev at the end of the day was to build a system that we could. You know, help brands through this initial process, and then when they, w- when they're ready, when they've gone out and they've raised enough money, and they've hired in the appropriate internal product people, the supply chain is theirs to to own and operate. Right? We're not. Mm-hmm. We don't want to insert ourselves in the middle in perpetuity where we're marking up cost of goods sold et cetera. what we're doing is we're setting up supply chains for scale for brands that you know have high growth intent or high growth potential who you know maybe their their opening orders only 5000 units but two years down the line they're placing you know 25000 100000 unit purchase orders because they've they've been able to scale their business and as a result they're not continuing to pay that markup on cost of goods sold that you would if you were going through a trading company. Um, it's not uncommon to start down that path with a trading company. And once you find product market fit and to, to, invest in actually standing up your own supply chain. Um, so the, uh, I'll say like the cat scratch
0: um <laughs> just probably yeah, right. not, not a best, doorstep. Yeah, not the
2: best <laughs> thing for doors, but uh, like maybe maybe we just use canopy as an example. Yeah, no, that's um, great. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day what, what we're looking for, if we're doing everything end to end, you know, industrial design through supply chain setup into freight and freight and ops, um, you know, we're looking for uh looking for a number of things one we're looking to understand what the capital structure of the business is how much money have they raised do they have the money that they need to invest uh, to stand up a supply chain and then have enough money to launch a website, build a brand and and spend the marketing dollars to to keep the business uh, rolling. That's super important to us, uh, you know, kind of hearkening back to that. We want any any brand that we, we work with, we want to see them be successful. We want to make sure that they're going to have like a long lifespan and um, mm-hmm. support them in, in standing up a supply chain that, that can scale with them. Um, two, I think it's like we... we are in a position and, you know, we have been historically to say no to things if we don't think it's going to be a good fit for us, whether it's, you know, a type of product category that we're not super familiar with. We don't do wet chemistry. Um, we don't do apparel, right? Um, we really focus on like du- durable goods. Um, okay. Canopy is a great example in injection molded plastic part with, with a fan. There's some electrical components involved. Um In that case, we'd be looking for a brief from the client saying, "Hey, here are all the key characteristics. Here's what. Here's the kind of target market we're looking to go after. Here's our uh, target landed costs. Here's the key constraints that we've were aware of. Whether that's, you know, relevant compliance testing, or in you know the case of a humidifier, say we need it to be able to humidify a space up to five hundred square feet, right? So there are you know kind of design constraints and engineering constraints, and we're looking." to have those at least somewhat defined prior to kicking off an engagement. So that way we can have a clear picture and path forward. We're also looking for, you know, target minimum order quantities somewhere in the 1,500 to 2,500 range. Obviously, the more the better, because you're going to be able to push price down on the factory side of things. But um that's kind of the low end of of what we're looking for in terms of what people are looking to execute uh on and at the end of the day you're making a big capital investment to set up a supply chain so um once we have all those those key characteristics defined um what we'll do is we'll step into the industrial design phase we'll bring in the design team we'll have a kickoff meeting, really kind of blue sky the project and say here's where we're here's where you're finding inspiration here's where we're finding inspiration doesn't even have to be the same category of product. it could be a sculpture that you like or something (laughs) like that um we 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 just worked with the soft services team they just launched a product actually on tuesday um that you know was inspired by like some some sculptural art that we then took and turned into a physical product and it's it's beautiful it's called theraplush i think um but um so, you know, once we we do that blue sky work, then we're going to start to to lay out a handful of different concept path paths forward. We're going to narrow that down and then refine until we get to something that is ready to be basically handed off to the engineering team. Um so that way we can start to really think about, okay, now we we have this beautiful product in three dimensions, right? We know what it looks like, but how does it actually get made? Um, and, you know, there's a natural tension between design and engineering, <laughs> right? I think um, uh, there's a there's design in theory and then there's like design functional design in practice and and how do you get product made at the end of the day is is always a, an interesting challenge so once we get to the end of industrial design it gets handed off to the engineering team and then um we're we're kicking that tech pack over to the team in Hong Kong as well, um, and we're going out and we're sourcing, uh, we're reaching out to a bunch of different manufacturing partners, trying to figure out who would be a good fit, figuring out what sample cost timing MOQs look like, what estimated tooling costs look like at that point. And then um, while the engineering team is working in conjunction with some of these factories, we are... Uh, getting samples, reviewing the samples, working towards making a decision about who the best manufacturing partner is going to be. Um, from there, we'll kick off tooling if it's relevant. If you have an injection molded plastic part, um, you essentially need to build a fixture that you can inject the plastic into. Um, and so so that'll get kicked off. That And, and during that process, we're going to get multiple samples off of that tool, make sure that the product coming off the line is you know, of the spec and quality that that we're looking for and we're ultimately trying to achieve. Um, and once we go through that process, you know, a few rounds of sampling, we're kicking off, um, you know, I, ideally kicking off a purchase order and, and starting mass production, um, setting up supply chains for e-com packaging for most of our, uh, mm-hmm. for most of our, customers as well and on the canopy side of things we've i think we're on our fifth iteration of packaging at this point so packaging is low key tricky and i think yeah. everybody, everybody underrates how complicated packaging is actually going to end up being um, and uh, yeah then finished goods get packed packed into their e-com shippers put on a container and sent to a 3pl now you've got a product in market in general that that whole process uh, takes uh, it's about two months of industrial design and then five to seven months of you know setting up the supply chain and getting finished goods. Wow. So, a lot wow. of people we have a lot of conversations where it's like, Hey, I, I want new pro, like, uh, I, you know, I had a conversation last week, I want new product in market in uh, December and I want it to be fully custom. And I'm like, Unfortunately, <laughs> that's not gonna happen. To <laughs> it's, Sorry, uh,
0: buddy.
2: Yeah, it's, it's definitely a matter of like the people who are new to the product development process i think underestimate the amount of time energy and effort that it takes underestimate the cost that it, that that goes into the whole process um and but at the end of the day right when when we go through that process now we have a supply chain stood up all you need to do is email the supplier and say hey we need to get the ball rolling on a second purchase order um a lot of clients are continue to work with us, we manage their supply chains in in an ongoing fashion, um, and then ideally are helping them stand up new supply chains for new product as the business grows. Um, And then eventually people sadly graduate from doorstep and hire (laughs) internal product people and uh, everything should be running smoothly at that point.
1: That's awesome. That's it, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) oh no, my that God. is
0: fascinating. Uh, we never, we never get the inside scoop on like everything leading up, right? Like most of the time, you know, we're not even, we're even beyond the first set of customers. We're retention focused, so yeah, this is like two steps removed <laughs> from us. Um, I mean,
2: I, I think it's actually really, it's really interesting because even though we sit very far apart from like a where we live in you know meeting these brands and and integrating with them the the like the end goal is actually the exact same thing right like retention mm. starts on the factory floor as far as we're concerned right you're not going to be able to retain customers if good product is not coming off the line and arriving in customers' hands. They're not going to come back to you for product number two or three or four. They're not going to subscribe for whatever your um, subscription model looks like if the initial experience with the product isn't great, it's the first impression. And you know if you're if you build this beautiful brand and you set customer expectations really high for, for what they're going to receive and then you get something that doesn't meet those expectations. Uh, I, I have a story. I, yeah. I just bought a new set. I just bought a new set of TaylorMade golf clubs.
0: Nice. I have, I bought, I got the pings, but okay. I was looking at the TaylorMades. So, yeah. so like, I just bought a set, set of TaylorMade
2: Maid sales. Super excited about it. I, I'm like, wow, it's time. I think my golf, my set of clubs were from 1999.
0: Like, <laughs> same, man. We needed an we the process. Yeah. And
2: they arrived in, like the shittiest corrugate box with like just these un not thoughtful foam inserts
0: yeah and like
2: my excitement level <laughs> from it, and like i'm still very excited i have my new set of golf clubs but like e- expectations were misset in my mind it like, would have yeah, been
1: better yeah
2: <laughs> yeah it could have been so much better um and i think like being thoughtful about that entire experience is super important especially if you're a d- digitally native brand at the end of the day is like delivering high quality product and the physical experience of receiving the product are are very important. Absolutely. I'm,
0: I'm curious. We actually just had, are you familiar with whiplash uh, there? Yeah, I am. Yep. they're, They're a great 3PL partner of ours and we were actually on multiple calls with them just yesterday. So this is top of mind. I'm curious. Um, like, what is the what is the intersection between what you how you think about packaging and then what a three PL can can add to that experience? Um, yeah,
2: yeah, for then the customer. So I, I think that as far as that goes, we are constantly working with clients to help minimize cost domestically. Right? If you're producing, like, so many people sell like starter kits of something, yeah. right? Whatever sure. it is. Um, even canopy, it's a starter kit, right? We have the humidifier, we have the adapter and cord to plug it into the wall, we have a, a set of aroma kits, we have a filter, right? Now, if you were to assemble all of that domestically at a 3PL, it's going to get relatively expensive because they're charging you on a pick and pack basis, every single mm-hmm. touch is an additional cost. Right. Um, so we're really looking to do a couple of things on the packaging development side of things. One, we're, we're trying to optimize for space. Like thankfully over the course of the last two weeks, freight costs have like really come down, which is exciting. Last year they were $20,000. I think I saw a quote last week for six, 6k, um, which is very exciting.
0: Yeah, that's, that's quite a difference.
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd but, say so. <laughs> you know, we're, one one major thing we're doing is we're optimizing for for space, right? We want to have the smallest possible box that can keep product protected, um, because you're talking about saving saving costs one on the freight side of things, two on the storage side of things, and three on the outbound fulfillment side of things. Um, so there's the implications of optimizing your packaging are are super important. And then on the other the the, the other thing that we're really thinking about is how can we kit as much as possible abroad where it's going to be a lot cheaper to put that mm. those kids together. Um, just lower labor costs, et cetera. Um, now, obviously, you know, you're working with a 3PL you're expecting them to to run special projects where you're like hey i need you to take this out of the box put this in it etc um (laughs) web flash told us yesterday that they literally put bikes together for one of their
0: customers (laughs) like they make bikes
2: (laughs) oh of course i mean there's i've definitely we've definitely asked 3PLs to do a lot of crazy things back in the day like at Raiden, we were like you need to open up all these returns and polish these suitcases and put them back in bags so that we can, you know, like 3PLs yeah. are always down to help out. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say we're like diametrically opposed. I think that we have a union with 3PLs that is, we're trying to make everything operationally efficient. And I think good mm-hmm. 3PLs are focused on operational efficiency as well. Um, right. And at the end of the day, they would rather have people who have high-volume products who are moving a lot in and out of the warehouse than people who are just doing a lot of kidding, um, for kidding's sake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: That's cool. Yeah. yeah, that's... I Like, I didn't even... I never have thought about the idea that, like, when a 3PL gets... Which I'm new to the 3PL game, too, totally. So I'm still figuring all that out. And yesterday's sessions with them were, were really helpful. But I, I didn't think about the fact that, like, there is also packaging work that's done before the package even arrives to them um sure. and so it makes a lot of sense that you'd be optimizing for efficiency with um you mentioned like three or four factors that you think about uh that all that all make sense i'm wondering is there any with the big push on like eco-friendliness yeah. do you think about that at all when you're manufacturing products and or is that more like absolutely. once it gets here
2: no no absolutely i mean i mean i think that at at this point, it's table stakes, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Wherever there's opportunity to to take an eco bent, you want to take it. Um, the like there, we work with a bunch of brands that have really heavy products, right? And heavy products means Corgit fails when it's getting shipped. There's um, a type of testing you can do called ISTA testing that. Uh, will basically run your package through a bunch of like hilarious scenarios, like getting drops a hundred times and, you know, heat testing, uh, cold testing, et cetera, to make sure that vibration testing so that we, we can have a really high level of confidence that products not going to get destroyed in transit. Um, so, you know, uh, back in the day everybody just put foam in it was super easy to protect it's super easy to protect anything if you put a bunch of foam in it but obviously (laughs) no customer wants to open a box that's filled with foam like that gives you an icky feeling as a consumer at this point so um being really thoughtful about you know the types of corrugated inserts you can create how you can uh experiment with like kind of some frontier stuff some it's this super high cost right now, but I think it's really interesting. There are mycelium inserts. So you can basically make a mold and grow these mushroom inserts to put in your your packaging, which is fully biodegradable. Not super scalable at the moment, but definitely very cool for brands that are trying to do something special. Um, but I think like at the end of the day, minimizing plastic is is a prerogative of every single brand that we're working with, at least single use plastic, right? Like it's right. it's another thing to to make product in plastic. It's it's just the issue of making sure that you have as little plastic in in your packaging as possible.
1: hmm yeah. I actually just had to look up what corrugated inserts mean. So it's like when it fits in the box, like perfectly, it has that little indent. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um Yeah, yeah. I, I love and... too that you said, oh wait, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just
2: down. gonna say, and then you look at like an apple, right? And like people <laughs> really don't, they don't wanna like throw out the packaging. Yeah. If <laughs> Yeah, like, I'm sure everybody has like a laptop mm-hmm. box in their closet. And <laughs> I just don't feel good about throwing this away for whatever reason.
1: You're so right. I'm so glad that you <laughs> mentioned yeah. that, because I think that is an extremely relatable point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, just,
0: that literally just happened to me. Uh, my, my girlfriend, Ashley, is like, what are we doing with this? Box? You know, she doesn't <laughs> want any clutter at all. And I'm like, I don't know, but like, just leave it there. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I don't
1: important. know, but it makes me feel better. <laughs>
0: yeah, <of
1: course. laughs> yeah. I feel like I always play the game of like, Oh, I'll use it later. Or like, if I like return the product or whatever, or like if I'm shipping, yep. I'm such, okay, this is such a tangent, but I don't care. I'm going to go on it anyways. <laughs> like if I get a nice package, I will save the box to like, send to other people if i'm like sending something to my family or friends or like returns okay you guys are nodding your heads you also do that okay yeah for for a good chunk of time i was like oh my god am i like crazy doing this but it works because it it does make you feel better like it goes back into the experience of what you were saying like you don't want to throw it out because like single-use plastic you feel like terrible about right like um and the the helium inserts you were saying like
2: mycelium, back... mycelium inserts.
1: Oh mycelium! I was picturing like balloons. <laughs> no,
2: no, no. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, no, it's it's mushrooms.
1: Okay. Oh, okay, really?
2: okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that are like to protect that that are like a protecting agent, basically. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. Oh my God! I'm gonna wow! I really I'm gonna like do a deep dive into this now because that's that's interesting. Check it
2: out. Yeah, I'm just a, picturing a like
1: copy... a mushroom in a box.
2: <laughs> there's a company called Ecovative that does it. Like I don't know, I don't know if you guys have ever during covid somebody gave me like a mushroom grow kit and like it's just like this mycelium brick that you like spray with oh my water god and, um wait well i'm like looking it, at them. you make these mycelium bricks that are you know the same as like a corg- corgid insert um again not super scalable at this moment in time <laughs>
0: something that i think is super cool That is cool that's awesome wow i knew this would be a good one <laughs> learning so much this is wild. Uh, oh that's awesome yeah I do I definitely do the same thing Mariah mostly though with like bags like Mm. lululemon bags are normally what I package gifts in
1: to be honest with you Mm -hmm. I always save those yeah um that's a good that's a good add-on right there Noah uh,
0: another question I was thinking when you when you were sort of talking about the whole process I'm so happy you walked us through that because I would imagine like a lot of, you know, for us and a lot of our listeners probably don't realize how much goes into it. What what should brands be doing in like that interim period while they're waiting for the product to be ready? Like, are they normally fundraising? Are they normally like evangelizing their brand and starting their marketing outreach? Are they, you know, like what, what have you seen them do and what would you recommend that brands do when they're in that sort of holding period?
2: I, I think it depends. Like if, if you're talking to pre- a brand that's pre-launch at the end of the day, if you're engaging with a Doris dev, you've you've already raised that like pre-seed round of funding. Um you're probably you've probably already kicked off branding work. Um ideally, like if we're doing industrial design, you have like a logo and a color palette figured out by the time we're getting the ball rolling. Um and then you're getting the process started on designing and developing the website getting everything set up operationally if you're going to manage your own 3pl make sure that that's all tight make sure you understand what the tech stack's going to look like on on your side of things i think um you know on the canopy side of things this is super true the tech stack that we started with is not the tech stack that we have today right and like even you know launching with you guys on the canopy side of things like my mind super exciting change to the business super interesting opportunity for us um, and honestly, like a no brainer. Um, yeah. I think the, the thing is, is like when you're first evaluating your tech stack though, you need to be thoughtful and you need to stay scrappy. I think that a yeah. lot of brands and I think everybody's feeling this now, but, uh, people like to spend when they have the money and, <laughs> uh, you know, m- uh, fundraising is a lot harder to do today than it was a year ago. Um, So being super thoughtful and staying scrappy, I think, is key in in thinking about where what are the highest impact areas of the tech stack that you want to invest money in today, where you wanna end up in the future. And like, you know, maybe that's starting with something super simple on the referral side of things or on the reviews side of things and knowing that you're going to eventually graduate to something that's a little bit more sophisticated and complicated um that that's going to give you the ability to do more things whether that be on the retention side of things or or the loyalty side of things um so i think it's really a matter of like during during that interim phase there's a ton of work that's going on and ideally we're just giving you peace of mind on on the product side of things and yeah syncing up with you on a week over week basis. Um, I I guess the other thing you're doing is like lining up agency partners that you need to execute post launch, right? So find your, find your email agency, find your paid, right. paid search, uh, your paid, uh, your digital media agency, whatever that looks like um, and build up a deep bench of creative. So that way you can test and move quickly. Right. Uh, and then if 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 you're already in market and you have if you and you have customers there there are a couple of interesting things you could do. I think one you can get I you know I I shortened the process a little bit to make it a, a bit more palatable. There's obviously a lot of detail in what goes right. on. There's you know production validation testing is is when we're doing a pre-production run to get Um, you know, a handful of sample units, make sure that the mass production process is going to be firing on all cylinders when we're actually trying to produce a few thousand units or tens of thousands of units of something, you know, I think there's an interesting opportunity there to seed some of your, um, you know, what, some of your biggest customers and say like, Hey, we we, Uh, we want to give you this, give us some feedback, right? It's a great way to build loyalty. It's a great way to build evangelists for the brand. Um, what we do is we kind of uh, on the canopy side of things we have like an SMS list which we kind of refer to as canopy VIP right so we're we're teasing them with stuff a lot earlier on than we we are the rest of the customer base so I think it's kind of like priming them there um, seeding influencers getting the PR team to start pitching the the, the product out to um different publications so that way when we mm-hmm. do have a launch it's splashy right and um we have things that we can point to uh on the press side of things and then ideally behind that clicks into place the email side of things start spending on you know Facebook Instagram Google TikTok Pinterest wherever you're finding success and and kind of scale into it um but yeah i think it's a little different depending on if you're in market or if you're if you're uh uh pre-launch
0: right Um, no, I think that's, that's also very like interesting just based on, I I actually had that question written down is, is, uh, but I have a ton now, (laughs) um, (laughs) is are most of the brands that you work on like net new entrepreneurs that come to you with a product and then they have to like go get funding. And I'm curious about how you would get funding before you have, you know, validation that one, you've done this before or one, a, you know, you have a product that works. <laughs> yeah. Um, and two, um, uh, another like top of mind question, because we partner with a lot of those, those agency types that you sort of walk through, like, is it, is there a, well, one, you know, do you have preferred agency partners that you help sort of point your clients to? And is there a world in which you start to do some of that
2: growth, uh, that growth stuff down the road at Doris? So I don't think that lots, we'll ever do stuff to do there. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think we'll ever do growth stuff. I think that if anything, like we'll use Doris Dev as a vehicle to launch more canopies and mm. in the world, um, and hire in people who are deep experts in specific things. Right, I, I think that that's kind of the. In my mind, that's the beauty of working with agency partners, right? Like they have deep narrow narrow expertise in in what you're hiring them to execute on. And I would rather trust the people that do it day in day out than you know become. You know, I'm an armchair digital advertiser for sure. Don't get me wrong. Spent some money on Facebook and Google. (laughs) I'm definitely not as good as as our agency partners, and and we for sure have have. Um, you know, preferred agency partners, especially after building relationships on the canopy side of things. And and I always refer clients into them because they've done a great job for us. Um, As far as like agency partners that are good fits for us, like, you know, potentially um, helping support each other in building, you know, getting new business, Um, branding, branding shops are are kind of one of the key pieces, Uh, just because branding shops are the only people that are having conversations with pre-launch brands as early as we are um it's really like us and them um so that's super interesting and then the the other piece of the question was um
0: it was around fundraising thanks for staying with me i know a yeah, lot yeah.
2: um th- so <laughs> so i the 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 I guess it was kind of like what's the breakdown of brands? So I would say it's fifty-fifty, right? We have brands that are, you know, have been in market who are now looking to do some product innovation work. They know they they've they've got product market fit with product number one. Uh, they've got some momentum, they've raised a little bit more money, they've proven out the concept, and now they want to start to expand the line. And mm-hmm. um you know, that's always that's always fun to work with. And then um, you know, some some of them are even much more mature than that, right? Like the you know, they're 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 deep on their journey already they've been in market for 5 to 10 years but they're looking for an innovation partner to come in and really be thoughtful around how to how to expand the product line and then you know the other 50% is people who are you know potentially launching a business for the first time maybe the second time generally those are people who have a background in either you know they were on the founding team or first 10 employees at you know some of the the legends of D2C whether that be a a, a Warby or a Casper or uh yeah. You know, in a way, a glossier, um, and then you know, a fair amount of other people who you know maybe they are they they just got their MBA right, like the ex-consultant types who are looking to to kind of dive into their own business. Basically, people who who have a good profile that investors would be be interested in in getting into bed with, so to speak. So, um, I, I think that that. Uh, those are those two cohorts of people on the you know the the pre-launch side of things are are pretty common as far as the types of people that, that we're working with. And um yeah, I mean it's it's hard to raise money right now. So uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, uh, we know yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, we're feeling that on the SaaS side as well for sure. Um how I'd love to, I'd love to hear if you can talk mm-hmm. a little bit about like how much brand should expect to spend when they're, or, or new companies when they're building a product for the first time. Um, but also more on a, at a higher level, like how much should they think about raising? Right. Cause to your point, like there's the product is one thing and it's a huge expense expenditure, maybe the biggest, but then you have to like invest in a, Whole tech stack, and you've got to build out your storefront. You've got to hire all these agencies, or hire internally. Yeah. So, like, typically, is there a number that you're like bare minimum? You need a million dollars, bare, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean that that's what we're looking for at the end of the day is somebody who's raised a million dollars. That that can vary up and down depending on complexity of the product. It's really hard for me to say how much money you need to set up a supply chain without like it. the, the variation sure. between You know, something super simple, like if you're talking about launching a silicone bowl brand, like, you know, (laughs) not much money is the answer. If you're if you're talking about launching something that's, uh, you know, complicated with multiple different functions with a ton of uh, electronics embedded into it and connectivity to an app you know, right. now you're talking about a million dollars isn't even close enough to, to launch a business because you're not going to be able to, sure, maybe you can set up the supply chain and do all the engineering and industrial design work and and pay for tooling. Tooling is super expensive um, and, you know, do, do all of those things. But like now do you have enough money to to sell, to, to go out <laughs> to market and actually spend the marketing dollars to right. move it's extensively going to be a very expensive product? Like that's where the challenge comes into play. Um and and again like you can do this in super scrappy ways if if you really want to you can definitely go down the alibaba route and people are successful in doing those things you can go down the kickstarter route too and like get proof of concept if if you're mm-hmm. really passionate about a, an idea and like it, people people are going to be skeptical no matter what product you want to launch at the end of the day right like people are very skeptical skeptical about launching a humidifier in the beauty and wellness space. And now we, we're canopy's killing it over there. So, um, nice. you know, I, I think the, a million dollars is where I would kind of set, set the bar. I think that there's still opportunity to, to collaborate if, if you've you know raised a half a million or 750 K, but, um, I would say anything less than that, then we're starting to teeter on like Doris Dev probably isn't the best fit for for product development. There's probably other um, you know lower cost options or uh, that that are going to be m- more well suited to to the budget that you have to work with.
0: Cool. That is very uh, yeah, very interesting. I just threw out the million. It's like a round number, so it's funny <laughs> yeah. that that was the number. Yeah. Um, oh, that's great. Um, okay, so I want to. I know that you said earlier, you talked a little bit about how, you know, even though we're sort of at two different, massively different parts of like the brand life cycle and the customer life cycle, but uh, we're thinking about retention in similar ways beyond just um, packaging. Are there any other things that you think about from a retention standpoint, you know, early on in,
2: in uh, production? I mean, I think that there are interesting levers you can pull on the product side of things. I do think that this is this is something that, like, you know, we can only lead a horse to water. Um, one thing <laughs> that I, I saw that, that I think is super cool, um, I am always, like, I have, a, I have a skincare routine, and every time I run out of something at night, I'm like, oh, I'll reorder that tomorrow, or I'll go pick it up tomorrow. And then two weeks later, I've still haven't gotten it and every <laughs> night I'm like god damn it why don't why have I it? <laughs> so I think that there's interesting things that you can do on like the the QR code side of things like for, for physical product mm. where it's like a quick reorder like on yeah. the back of your you know your skincare product or whatever that is um because i probably have i'm probably like listening to a podcast or something um, but i'm not pulling out i'm not going to your website right away and if i had an easier way to just like quick check out, i think that would be a really interesting way to just retain customers and keep them coming back on on the actual product side of things I also that seems think- like before
0: you go to the next. That seems like you said Malomo's a no-brainer. We agree. <laughs> <laughs> the the QR on the packaging seems like a no-brainer. Like why would every consumable brand not not have that?
2: Of course, of course, and, and like it, people have just become <clears throat> super used to, to using it. We we canopy actually uses Bridge, um, mm-hmm. for for QR codes and. Canopy has a disposable filter, right? Or a consumable filter every six weeks or so you need to replace the filter inside of your canopy. I think that having a, this is like, this is like a aspirational goal for, I think a lot of brands, but having a product that needs something to keep working is also a really nice unlock. I think that's like a dirty, dirty little secret trick of the trade, (laughs) right? If you like, you can't use an old school vacuum without a vacuum bag, right? Like you right. can't uh, if you if you sell somebody a permanent skincare pump, like the Theraplush that I mentioned before, you have to buy refills in order to get value out of it. And now you have this like permanent thing on your counter. You kind of like don't want it to go to waste. Um, right. With a humidifier, you have something sitting on your bedside. If you don't, if you're not replenishing the filter, you're not, you know, you're, you you can't use it. So it's kind of like if you can. That's like a little, a little d- dirty secret, maybe. Um, we did uh, a little catch-all force, force <laughs>
0: retention, almost. Yeah, we, we did a podcast with one of our top marketing agencies, uh, Electric, and our buddy Brandon over there. The the whole theme of the podcast ended up being every brand can be a. a a uh, subscription brand like it doesn't matter if you i think his example mariah was like it doesn't matter if you sell pools like yeah. we have a brand who sells pools and they figured out a subscription model. yeah so,
1: yeah and if you're curious like that subscription was like a cleaning service like if yeah, you just right. get creative with it there's ways to set up your business model to favor retention like you're saying with like filters or a replaceable a replaceable part yeah
2: of course. I mean there's a I, I just listened to a podcast recently that was talking about there's this whole private equity initiative. They're gobbling up all of the car washes all over the country and rolling them up and selling subscriptions for way like oh, basically yeah. the cost of one wash plus twenty percent and then Maybe people use it, maybe they don't, but right. they're still on board longer. And it's like, you know, any uh, car washes can be a subscription business. Really anything. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. I also want to add too with the QR codes. I yeah, it's weird that it's not more um practiced, but it is also so user-friendly too. Like anyone Absolutely. can use it. Like that's one thing that I think um one of those things where it's like oh it should be table stakes but it's interesting that it's not and it's just because i think a lot of brands don't use it but if you're on the earlier side to using it too it stands out because you're like wow this is so easy because you just scan the qr code and then you can check out right there
2: it's so easy that my parents don't get confused about it that's
1: (laughs) That's the point i was trying to make thank you michael (laughs) (laughs) I think
0: you might've had one more that you were going to say before I abruptly
2: interrupted. You. Oh no, that, that was, I was, I was still going to talk about the filter for, for canopy. I, yeah. I think that's at the end of the day, right. Those are, those are pieces of the puzzle on the agency side of things. It's like, do do good work. Right. Like that's, I think that's, it's as simple as that. If you're an agency partner who genuinely cares and the people who are staffed on an account genuinely care about the success of, a, of an engagement um, especially for like a, a company like Doris Dev, we're embedded with our clients for for years oftentimes, right? right? And, um, I've worked at branding agencies in the past and I always felt like such a mercenary. Like you get in, you do two months and you're out and like everybody's a little bitter at the end of it. Whereas like the goal of Doris Dev is like foster deep, meaningful relationships, have skin in the game, really care about the success of these brands, you know, talk to people like you guys to be able to then you know, recommending to clients to say like, Hey, have you guys thought about this? Like you really should be. Um, Cause at the end of the day, the more these businesses grow, the more opportunity that we then have to, to help set up new supply chains and build new product and, and do really cool and interesting and innovative things. So um, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a fun little, little circle.
0: I love that mindset. We, I'm going to go back to whiplash just for a second. We don't yeah. have like, we don't have an integration today. We don't, share revenue back and forth or anything like that but in my opinion like our team can become so much more strategic by recommending you know ancillary offerings whether they're technology or physical uh service service offerings um that you know we don't necessarily directly benefit from making that recommendation but we're now like a more strategic consultant for our clients they trust us more so uh over time it's just a great way to like build the relationship even though you may not be getting a whole lot of like monetary
2: or tangible yeah. value out of it right but it's super important to take that, yeah. that and, and and there's like the whole social proof aspect of it too right like i found i think i th- I found you guys because i uh was at a happy hour and i bumped into nick sharma and i was like no. i <laughs> um, I'm having like an issue with AfterShip right now. It's like, why are you guys using AfterShip? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: First I'm question. Like, yeah. Let me stop you right there. <laughs> yeah, so
2: it's like you know it, the social proof aspect is super important, and then you know the, you meet people in the ecosystem. Other people are using your platform or or your service, and then um, you know the whole flywheel stays in motion. Ideally,
0: right? Yeah. I, I am such a huge fan of that. Sharma is a great, great partner of ours and Nick is awesome. But uh, I think the challenge is like, you know, I, I think I heard you mention that on the call uh, that you had with our sales team initially, but then like most of the time you're not going to get that level of feedback. So you never know, but it's so much, right? Like the so, that's just to say the social proof is so much more impactful than we could ever measure or imagine, to be honest. Of course. All right, uh, let's wrap up couple like rapid fire we didn't do this at the beginning but i always love to ask what are one or two things in your personal life uh, mm-hmm. michael that you're excited about right now
2: well i i'll say i just uh i moved back recently from south florida i was a uh, i exited new york briefly um during covid and uh like I, many did like many <laughs> did and i you know spent A good 18 months in south florida where it's summer all year round and it's just varying intensities of summer Um, (laughs) so what i'm personally very excited about i grew up in the northeast fall is by far the best season i i'll fight anybody who says differently um and i am very much enjoying the fact that we are in peak fall and i can finally like wear light jackets again that yep. is, is currently what I'm most excited about. <laughs> like,
1: That's a great spot to be in, honestly. I, I, I love fall too.
2: Jacket. I bought a leather jacket right before COVID started and then was just locked inside. And I'm like, I haven't been able to use it at all. Now I can finally wear it.
1: That's so nice. exciting. Yeah. That's awesome. little things
2: fall
0: fall in the in the northeast is pretty incredible. Yeah. We like it feels like Mariah for us in Indianapolis, like fall is like two weeks.
1: It's not, it's the, like, same. Yeah. It's not the same, yeah. I'm from New Jersey, and so also Northeast, and so yeah, it's All's worth uh, that. it's so much better, mm, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, we before we started recording, I mentioned Happy Hour next Wednesday in New York. So if yes. you're free, if any of our, I don't know if we're gonna get this out before then, Mariah, but
1: um, before well, New York, no. <laughs> okay. Well, but... <laughs> we'll be
0: there for, for Thread, for a attendance conference. And before the conference starts on Thursday, we're doing a happy hour in like midtown area. So Michael, I will send you the details for that. Last mm-hmm. question. Um, obviously you've had a, an incredible career, like unlike many of the, the people that we've had on the podcast, like I said before. So um, what's like one tip or trick or, or some piece of advice that has sort of guided you? throughout your your career so far
2: i i think the the thing that is most salient to me is and, and i it's advice that i feel like you can't really heed until you go through it and make the decision but that is to say like don't fall prey to the sunk cost fallacy like no Ooh, that's a no, great one no one to cut and run i i I've definitely found myself in situations or going down paths or working on projects and, um, you know, felt pressure to get something across the finish line, even though it may not have been the right fit anymore, whether that be professionally or from a project perspective maybe th- things have shifted and changed and you kind of just need to take a step back and and rethink where you're at what you're doing why you're doing it and i think it's super hard once you've already invested a ton of time energy and effort into something to to kind of cut and run um so i think that is that is my my biggest piece of advice to anyone
1: That's a great I, piece of advice.
0: <laughs> I just heard this podcast. I think it was like a Motley Fool episode where they had this uh they had a writer on who just wrote a book. I just looked it up. I think it's the power of knowing when to walk away. Is this like subtitle and the the title is quit. (laughs) I um, (laughs) I read that. It is. It was such a fascinating podcast. Like I'm, I'm for sure going to get the book. Um, Cause all we hear is like, you know, be persistent. Stay at it. (laughs) And there are like definitely times where you shouldn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and, and there are definitely times you should but... yeah, exactly her whole point was like if you've ever quit at anything you probably should have done it a lot sooner like mm. and there are probably things right now that you're thinking about quitting that you probably should um, so that's incredible advice we've heard a lot of like kind of similar stuff that is well outside anything we've heard so far so oh, love it love that yeah. yeah well thanks man it was great yeah. having you on and hopefully we can see each other in person next week
2: Yeah, I'll definitely see you guys next week. And yeah, really appreciate you having me on. Honestly, a lot of fun. Love the the combo.
1: Yay. We love hearing that. Thanks, Michael.
2: For sure. Thanks, Michael.